I'm very excited to be learning English. <laughs> with, no worries. Okay. With, we both have really hard names. With Irin Carmon. I know. Mine is awful. Yeah. Um, people cannot pronounce my name right. But at least with you, you have an excuse because you're Israeli. And so if you mispronounce other people's names, you can always pretend. Although, how long did you live in Israel? I left when I was two years old. Okay, so you don't really have much of an excuse. I, I learned English and Hebrew at the same time, so I can't really claim to be ESL. Yeah, and like all. English is a simultaneous language. The, uh, oh, you were right, but I think that's the best way to learn any language. Yeah, I think it really helped me um, because I, I later learned other languages, and I think it created the brain space to do that. I thought that part of the debate, in fact, with you know ESL in general, was that if someone doesn't finish their first language, it's much harder to learn the second one. So, in fact, it was probably better that you were learning both fluently. Yeah, my parents played a lot of games to try to make sure that we learned Hebrew. We would spend every summer in Israel, and they like would play car games where you got points if you answered questions in Hebrew and trivia questions about Israel. And then we decided like the points could be redeemed. For, we're like, okay, one point, but where is this all leading to? And so we got them to say that the points were redeemable for prizes um and then we later said that the point should be redeemable for shekels uh but since the shekels four to one when we would come back to america we'd say okay actually it's redeemable for dollars so we were like we thought we were really crafty kids <laughs> i think you are the dollar's <laughs> worth more i think it's a smart way to go that's what you get for being an immigrant that, that <laughs> i was i love that in hamilton have you seen hamilton on broadway not yet but i do have tickets there's just one um the only reason to love it, no, 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 there's m- millions of reasons to love it, but there is um, a great throwaway line where they say, um, immigrants get shit done. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is great. I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you um, because I've been following your writing for a long time, and we're going to jump around just a, l- a little bit. But I wanted to ask you, um, starting out, you, you studied literature. Yes. And I had seen that you did your thesis on this wonderful Israeli poet, and I was wondering how, you know, studying Yehuda Amahai, how that helped you um, break into writing about, uh, I would say, social issues, and namely ones that happen to have a feminist bent. Is that a fair? Yeah. Um, well, my thesis was actually about both Yehuda Amahai, the Israeli poet, mm-hmm. and the one novel that he wrote, and the Argentine novelist, Ricardo yes. Piglia. Um, I, I was drawn to literature because you didn't have to specialize, which I think is sort of journalistic in a way you could take classes across different disciplines so I took film theory and anthropology and you had a lot of foreign languages whereas English was a lot of um, English and American classics which in retrospect I kind of wish I had done but at the time I was like I don't care about these dead white people so literature seemed like a way to be more global and and I was interested in issues of immigration and exile uh, and totalitarian regimes And so uh, both of those novels are about historical memory of genocide. And it was a way to look at the kind of sociopolitical elements of literature. And did that have anything to do with your background? I I believe your family survived the Holocaust and and came to Israel. They were one of the first families to be there. Is that true? Uh, Not exactly. but um, They were late. They came on (laughs) standard Jewish time. (laughs) No, um, well, well, two of my, I'm trying to think, my grandmother was born in what was then Palestine. Her parents had emigrated from Germany before the war because they were uh, Zionists in the 20s. They were German Zionists in the 20s. 
Um, and my father's parents also were Zionists and came from um, what's now Belarus okay. in, before the war as well. Um, and then my mother's father is Moroccan, and he came oh, wow. in 1950 um, to Israel also because he was a Zionist. Um, but the family members that the three European grandparents left behind were largely uh, the ones that stayed behind in their countries were murdered. Okay. Either at Auschwitz, Theresienstadt, um, you know, dug a hole for their own graves. Wow. Um, so I, I grew up with a very uh, Zionist kind of upbringing. Um, but my parents also uh, left Israel when I was two. To move here. Mm-hmm. And why did they move here? Here um, meaning the it, U.S. It was never going to be permanent is what they said. Um, but I think ultimately now they say they think that it was better opportunities for their kids. Um, I think my father is just a sort of entrepreneurial dreamer. Okay. And America was a bigger stage on which to pursue that. What did your folks do? They're both lawyers. Okay. And so if they were entrepreneur or he was an entrepreneurial dreamer, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> how did he feel about you breaking into uh, an industry that is is not known for its uh, liquidity. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, my father writes legal thrillers on the side, uh, oh. which are which sell really well on Amazon and get rapturous good reviews, um, which he often sends to his five children. Um, and uh, and so you know, check out the Dan Gordon spy thrillers from Hagai Carmon. Um, they're great, um, especially if you like spy thrillers. Um, but, I, you know, I think uh, partly it's like my parents had five kids. They were both working full time, setting up their own international legal practice. Um, they were really busy. And I think they were really happy that I kind of very early on knew what I wanted to do and that I just pursued it and wanted to work in the summers in high school. In As journalism. a writer. Yeah. yeah. And so I think they were like, oh, good. One less kid to worry about. Which number were you? Just out of I'm number three. Wow. Is, is everyone as prolific? Um, Any black sheep? <laughs> no black sheep. No, I actually, we're all pretty, excuse me, we're all, um, two of my siblings are trained as lawyers. Um, a bunch of us have ended up in politics or politics-related fields um, or international kind of diplomacy. My sister works at the U.S. Embassy. I have a brother who works on the Hillary campaign, um, another brother who was in politics and is now as a c- consultant. Um, so th- we have a Carmon family Google group. And um, although briefly we had to declare a moratorium on the Israel-Palestine conflict. What happened? I'm, uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I have a yeah. sneaking suspicion. <laughs> there, there's a broad <laughs> range of political views on Carmon family at googlegroups.com. <laughs> yes. And eventually it, we felt it was poisoning the family relationship. So some have gone to Bing. <laughs> some have left. Take your grievances to Carmon family at bing.com. Um, so it is it is wonderful to, to hear about your background, and I was asking you in major part because um, to you know my follow up questions are going to be about issues that you you have spoken about and written about um, at length. Um, one of them I wanted to start with. So I, just to give everyone else a background, you were at Salon um, before that. You were at Jezebel at what I would call the the height of Jezebel um, when Anna Holmes um, was there and and created it and. Um, it really, maybe it was, it was partly the height because that was the beginning, but also because that's when I was tuning into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then went on to salon and are now at MSNBC. So I, I am going to jump around a little bit. I wanted to ask you about how you found out about Eden Foods <laughs> and, um, 
in hindsight now how they've responded and and you can give listeners a little bit of a background of the story about Eden Foods. Okay, so uh people may remember Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby being a for-profit corporation that employs people of all different faiths that brought a case uh, in federal court, which reached the Supreme Court, in which they said that they didn't want to have to cover birth control on their insurance plan, something that was required by the Affordable Care Act, um, because the owners of the company object to it on religious grounds. So, you know, they're not using contraception. It's a plan that they subsidize, but it's the company subsidizing it, not the owner. Um, corporations have not been found to have religious views in the past. You know, these were all the issues that came to bear. But Hobby Lobby wasn't the only company that sued on those grounds. Um, one of the other companies, uh, you know, Hobby Lobby, by the way, I think a lot of people only got to know it because of the Supreme Court lawsuit. A lot of people in blue America. Um, I know, like, I was on the phone and all of my colleagues were like, wait, why do you keep saying Hobby Lobby? Like before the case became hmm. a really national story and I was reporting on, oh, you know, the Supreme Court's likely to take up Hobby Lobby. They're like, what the hell is Hobby Lobby? Um, but Eden Foods, if you live in blue America or a blue dot in a red state, is a sort of beloved, you know, I, I went to a Waldorf school and so I grew up with like lots of macrobiotic stuff around uh, the school and they had Eden soy. I mean, that's that's like the first healthy food I think a lot of people ever saw. I used to think of soy food as a healthy food, and now I can't have any soy. It could kill me. But, but, um, but I'm sure the first crunchy food you saw was probably Eden Foods. Absolutely. It was everywhere. It is everywhere. Yeah. So um, the owner of Eden Foods, Michael Potter, objected to birth control on religious grounds, he said. Um, and I he was one of many plaintiffs that brought a case, but... Someone, a source of mine, pointed out to me, like, hey, how come no one has noticed that this, like, totally crunchy brand that lots of liberals buy, you know, they never claim to be politically progressive, but I think people associate it with a certain kind of worldview. Uh, how come no one noticed that they're suing to deny their employees coverage of birth control? And I was like, yeah, good question. And I was working at the salon at the time, and I think the most important thing that you can ever do as a reporter is like not be scared to pick up the phone even if it's a complete waste of time yeah even if no one is going to call you back you know i think i even i sent an email maybe i left a voicemail but i was like whatever like this person is never going to talk to me but you're supposed to at least cover your bases but michael potter the ceo called me back and stayed on the phone for a really long time for someone who you know he just said and i think by the time he called me back my piece had already come out and people were getting furious at them and they were getting boycott uh, uh, promises and angry letters and he just called me anyway and was like just wanted to talk to you and then he proceeded to say all kinds of things that undermined his own case hmm. like he said he said things about how Obama is forcing him to do things but the, the law doesn't say you can opt out because you don't like Obama it's says you can opt out if you have a sincere religious belief. So I think we talked one other time, you know, I asked him, you know, what's your sincere religious belief? And he, he was like, no particular religious belief. So the funny thing that happened after that was that um, the federal government put that article in their brief and they were like, look, sincerity is one of the things you have to show. I mean, this guy just hates Obama. And then the Sixth Circuit, the appeals court, ended up citing my article in Salon, my interview with him. Um, and when they appealed to the Supreme Court, they sent a letter that said, um, 
<laughs> did the Sixth Circuit make a huge mistake, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, did the Sixth Circuit make a huge mistake by um, relying on a discredited tabloid that publishes articles about penises and sex? And then, like, someone had typed into salon.com either sex or penis, because one of the articles was about sex in the city. <laughs> but they were like, here is a list of ridiculous articles. And they were all just like sex. And one of them was like things you didn't know about penises. But at no point did they ever say that the quotes in the article were inaccurate. Because, by the way, I had a recording and he never contested the quotes. Um, but I just thought it was amazing because, you know, he, Mike, Michael Potter and I were on this like journey together. And it all boiled down to somebody saying, well, look how trashy it is that Salon publishes articles about sex. But the Supreme Court, to my great sadness, did not take the Eden Foods case. They took Hobby Lobby instead. That means because Hobby Lobby won, Eden Foods also won the right to not cover its birth control. Not right, cover so its employees. Eden Foods control. does not control birth control for its employees. Eden Foods does not cover birth control on its insurance plan. Any kind of birth control. Wow. And do people at Eden Foods boycott it? No, because they obviously know and they work there happily, I guess. It's a small company. Yeah. Um, I don't know what kind of choice. You know, in a lot of these places, it's not like you have a lot of choices about where to work. Yes. This is a small business in Michigan, you know, not known for its booming economy. Um, and, you know, Hobby Lobby employs thousands of people, and they're not currently covering birth control, and they're still kind of unresolved about what's going to happen to the coverage for the employees. Do you record all of your phone conversations? I don't, because sometimes it's just like you're in a hurry. And But um, I, I, I thank God that I did that one. How do you do it? Yeah. I um, mean, on that your one, cell phone. I, I worked from home, and he was on speaker, and okay. I just recorded on my computer. Okay. And I you, mean, I know, like, you can have devices that mount on the um, telephone or, or the iPhone, but I like I think I purchased it, and then I never installed it. Okay. That sounds like something I would do. Um, purchase and not install. So, but on a regular phone, how do you do it? At that for that call, yeah, I just you put it on speaker and okay. recorded it, the sound. Okay. Yeah, but you can't do that in an office now. I work in an office. Yeah. So, how do you conduct these interviews in an office where people are running around behind you? For for those, I don't record them, but I generally do record if I'm meeting with someone in person. Okay. Because it also allows you to like do what we're doing right now, which is to talk more like a real person and not be kind of with your face down. Um, with a pen and paper or a computer. Yeah, absolutely. And you can, like, listen and think about what the follow-up question is and not just be like, shit, did I get that down? You must be very proud, though, that, you know, a piece you wrote on Salon. First of all, I think it's hilarious to think of Salon as, like, a hotbed of porn. But um, you and must- Sex in the City <laughs> articles. <laughs> Although I say that now and then at the same time, like I get so irritated by Slate and Salon for having these headlines that I find so obnoxious and it's all trying to be clickbait. And I do feel sad that they've sort of watered down what I saw as their missions, which that was to have good journalism. Um, now I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm like, is this like, I don't know. They all seem so similar in many ways now, like Salon and Slate and the New York Times, and Entertainment Weekly, and all of these. It's a tough world out there. I mean, it was a great place for me to work, um, and I, I never felt like that was done to my stories. But I think, you know, people are just trying to survive. The media economy is rough. Yeah, I do think that they would um, – I get that it's rough, but I also would value them more if they um, stuck to their mission. Um, so then I want to ask you about The Daily Show. I was so – 
impressed and excited that you, um, what I thought was you were looking at a show that you really respect and love and said, why aren't there more writers and more correspondents? Who are women? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. That was so long ago, but I'm still really proud of that piece, and I think it holds up. It was 2010, June 2010. It was it's not that long ago. A piece that feels like a long time ago. It's a piece that I wrote for Jezebel. Um, I mean, like now I cover totally different things. I mean, I'm still covering issues of gender, but I'm much more focused on law and politics um, and policy. But it was, you know, it was, it also felt like a different moment in our internet culture. I think it was more shocking at that point for somebody to write an article of any kind. My article was a reported article, but to write an article of any kind that questioned a liberal icon in any way. Um, and the amount of hate mail that I got for that piece, which relied on named sources as much as possible and also had unnamed sources of people who had worked at the show, um, but certainly was not about my personal opinion of Jon Stewart. Um, there was so much hate mail and backlash. How, how do you deal with that? Like, I it was the even first time that I'd ever dealt with it. And again, it was the beginning of Twitter, too. So it was like really everything was new. And I was also, um, I want to say, so the day the piece came out, not that much happened. A bunch of people shared it. But then about a week later, it was the day before 4th of July, um, the women of The Daily Show issued an open letter saying, like, this piece was terrible. We love John. John's the best. No sexism to be seen here. Um, but it was signed by all kinds of women who had jobs that were not the jobs that I discussed in the piece. And that's what really triggered the backlash. It was once John Stewart said on the show, Jezebel thinks I'm a sexist prick. And once there was an open letter from the women on the show, I started getting emails like, how does it feel to be put in your place? Um, and the funny thing is that that day I had an apartment that didn't have, that didn't have air conditioning and it was like the hottest day of the year. And I was getting on a plane to Israel that night. That's a really good place to go when you're like getting a lot of backlash at home. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Right. And, 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 um, I had just like broken up with someone the night before oh, and not slept. It wasn't like a super Bye. serious relationship, but I was not having a good day. And then all of a sudden... I'm in the middle of an internet blow up. Um, oh, and like Slate published a piece saying that like Jezebel was ruining feminism and used my piece as exhibit A. Um, so there was a lot of stuff swirling around and I was like, I don't really have space to deal with this right now. I'm about to get on a plane. I need to, I was like Airbnb in my apartment. It was, I was trying to clean it. It was like, everything was happening at the same time. And I was like, leave me alone. I'm getting on a plane. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, even from Israel, you know, we, we had the internet there and um, there was a lot of stuff happening. But I, you know, it really taught me the value of having one, you know, being able to stick by your story. I think the piece still really holds up. And I think subsequently, maybe last year, John Stewart has given interviews saying, like, signaling really that he um, had a lot to learn when it came to the diversity of his staff. And I think some of the comments that Wyatt Cenac made this year uh, towards the end of the show indicated to me that, you know, the environment was not just like, we all love John, it's awesome. And also that it's a lot more than 
it's about a lot more than one person. We've had a lot more conversations since then about the representation of women in comedy, too. I think that conversation was happening in the community at that point, but it wasn't it wasn't the sort of perennial mainstream conversation at that point. No, and I find now it's also a misguided conversation a lot of the times. Like, the fact is, is if you were to look at the writing staffs that – staffs, excuse me, they were disproportionately – male and they are getting um, slightly better. I mean, they're certainly getting slightly better, but they were disproportionately male at in 2010 and it was embarrassing. Yeah. Um, and I think the reason... And there weren't women li- who had their own shows like the Broad City Women or Amy Schumer or Mindy Kaling. No. Um, and those are different kinds of shows. So that's the other thing right. there. Um, but I, I do feel like there is there is confusion over the matter. I remember when Jon Stewart stepped down and um, I'm on this particular group of women who were like, we should get another reporter in there. And I was like, he's not a journalist. He's a comedian. And then mm-hmm. the people that they would sort of elect to take his place were actresses. So I, I do think that there's sometimes like... Category errors. Yeah. Like yeah. A, a misguided approach from from well-intentioned people. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I did like about your piece was looking at the fact that there is a lack of female writers um, and correspondents. And, and that's true, I still feel, across the board. Yeah. Um, I'm really excited for Sam B's show. Yes, absolutely. And and also, th- it did get better. It ha- it did get better since 2010. So you might... Yeah, and his show got better, and they got Jessica Williams, and they got, uh, you know, I, th- I actually don't know that much about the writing staff, because honestly, right after that, I switched to the politics beat. Um, so I'm no longer watching those things so closely. And I'm also, I have been always, and, and more now than ever, a pop culture idiot. Like, I think I, s- I spend most of my time listening to opera. Um, and I have just kind of checked out a lot of the cultural conversation. I don't say that proudly, like, oh, I'm a person who doesn't have a TV. I do have a TV. I work in the TV business. But um, I I think I, I sort of just, my brain just stopped being able to follow along with certain new television shows and What stuff. do you chalk up to that? <sighs> that question was really wordly, <laughs> wordly uh, said. That question was really oddly said. What, what, what do you chalk up to your sort of... Um, Starting a piece about The Daily Show, going after them, and then just saying, like, you know what? I'm not. I'm more interested in opera now. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, to be honest, though, it was also harder for me to watch The Daily Show after all of that backlash. And it made me see Jon Stewart a little bit differently. So it was no longer that fun for me to watch it. And I, I didn't feel that way about Colbert. Um, no, but I think, I think it's just, like, you go through different stages of your life where you're interested in different things. Like, now I probably I spend a lot of time paying attention to the Supreme Court. I'm not saying one is more important than the other. This is just where my brain is right now. Um, okay, I might say one is more important than the other. I'm in the entertainment industry. <laughs> <laughs> I might say that it's but important I, to focus I think, on. I think there's a point at maybe, like, where you, where you get older, and then you're like, I like the things that I like, and I, I you know, this is actually probably a failing on my part. I don't want to acquire new habits. I just kind of want to stay with the stuff that I like and go to see Othello as many times as I can. So so um, I also wanted to talk about one other piece before we get to the Supreme Court because that is going to be the, the – that's where we're going. Um, I wanted to ask about Helen Thomas. And part of the reason I had asked you about where you were from was in major part because you wrote what I thought was an incredibly thoughtful post um, after the late Helen Thomas had said um, – things that were inflammatory or felt inflammatory um, to many viewers and um, myself included and and I'm a very pro-peace person I'm really pretty liberal when it comes to (laughs) to the issue of Israel and Palestine so 
Um, but what I liked about your piece was actually not whether you were drawing a side, yay or nay, for or against Helen Thomas, but you had brought up that it is okay to have complicated feelings about uh, icons or heroes. Um, and th that was what I really took away from your piece. However, I wanted to ask about your background because I noticed in the comments on your piece, um, the whole issue was really about Israel-Palestine, or it felt like commenters were, were going more towards Israel-Palestine. What was your feelings in hindsight after you wrote that piece and people's response to it? You know, I'm, I'm so um, thankful that you liked the piece, but I honestly don't even remember it. I mean, okay. there was so, I, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. there were so, it was, the Jezebel years are like a blur. The Daily Show piece was the one that I got to spend time on. Sometimes I read things and I'm like, did I, I'm not trying to cop out here. Although I hate talking about Israel. Um, I just don't even remember okay. that piece. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. It, um, we had to write like six pieces a day. Sometimes I find something and I'm like, did I write that? Wow. And so you were just churning out material. Yeah. And honestly, three, four years ago feels like an eternity. Okay. So, um, sorry. No, no, no. It's not, it's not a sorry. It's, it's an interesting thing that like you can write such serious pieces and not remember them. I remember it happened, but I don't really remember what I said or what she said. Okay. Um, so how do you, when you were writing for Jezebel, you would take a lot of readers' comments. I did want to ask, like, do you remember feeling like you had to compartmentalize what people were saying? I mean, sometimes when I read those comments, it makes my head explode. So I was just curious what it was like being a journalist and then having to respond to people's responses to your piece. I mean, I, I actually miss the Jezebel commenters. You do? Now, because the alternative... We, they were it was well moderated I mean at the time sometimes you'd be like god these people will never be happy they're so annoying they're so demanding but a lot of them engaged in good faith and they really most of the time like read and engaged with the subject whereas now you know commenters on other sites which shall not be named it's just like a lot of bile um, at this point, I, I really enjoy getting feedback from readers. I mean, I think, like, a lot of us got into this because we wanted people to listen or read or watch. Um, so it's really gratifying and an honor to hear from people. Um, the question is, you know, is that conversation going to be a, a respectful or humorous, <laughs> engaging one, um, which sometimes can happen on Twitter and Facebook. And I particularly like Twitter. Um, but I've stopped looking for it in the comments of news articles that I write. What are the pros and cons now of being on air and, and on camera? Well, I'm still writing, but I am on air in a way that I wasn't before and making TV in a way that I wasn't before. Um, the biggest con is having to care about your appearance, which I hate. I love the makeup staff and the hair staff when I'm in New York. It feels like, wow, you get to be a princess. But the flip side of it is... You know, you haven't slept, and you don't have time to wash your hair, and you have a lot of work to do, and yet you feel like you can't not participate in these beauty rituals because you're going to be under this microscope. And then, you know, getting feedback from people about, oh, your hair was in your face or whatever. Like, today my skin is really bad, and I just feel gross. And to even have that issue of your looks play into your work, it's not to say that we don't have that as women all the time prowling the earth just existing people are giving you unsolicited feedback on your appearance 
Um, I think more so when you're on camera, though. But when you're on camera, it's like you gave them permission to. And that's that's something that has nothing to do with your work. Yeah. Like, you have to do it. But it's... And I, I don't want to be one of those people complaining, like, oh, poor me. I have to, like, sit in an hour of hair and makeup. But the fact is the male colleagues go in there, get some, like, dusting on their bald spot and go. Um, so I wanted to also... Yeah. But I should say what the pros are. And yes. the pros are is that... Like, I like talking, <laughs> and live TV is really electric, and being able to tell stories with images and video is really fun. Learning about the technological aspect of it is really fun. It's so much more collaborative than writing. With writing, you're alone in a room most of the time. You might go out and do interviews, but uh, brass tacks, you're alone in a room. But working in TV is like you're never alone. You're on the road with a producer and a camera person and a sound person. And then afterwards, the editing process is collaborative. And then, like, the show is collaborative. And that's really fun because you're like, oh, if I screw up, I'm insulated by the talents of other people. I get so excited to do a live show because of that, uh, the collaboration. And I imagine on television it's even more so. Yeah, well, on a live show you have the energy of the room, which is a form of collaboration. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I also wanted to talk about Notorious RVG, which is um, just out. It's very exciting. It's from a division of HarperCollins, and it's called Notorious RBG: The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it is a co-collaboration, and I wanted to hear about the origins. Um, I believe it started with the Voting Rights Act is when you got inspired. Uh, my co-author, Shauna Knizhnik, uh, was a law student at NYU. And 24. She's 24. She's still a baby. I think she's 26, maybe. Tw- yeah, she's 26 right now. Gross. She's I'm just, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> she's so brilliant and so hardworking, and I love her, but I do tease her for being such a millennial. Um, <laughs> I'm like, Shana, you need to call that person. Okay, pick up the phone. <laughs> Although I will say, millennial. <laughs> I have a friend who is um, 30, and she like hate she hates receiving phone calls so much that on her answering machine it says, "Do not leave a message." I, yeah, I know a lot of people who are like that. And honestly, I don't love it either, but sometimes it's the most efficient way to go. And I'm, if you're a reporter, you definitely don't want to do an email interview with someone because that's just a way to get their talking points. Yeah. Um, so so tell everyone how you, you came about starting this. At that time, you were already working on politics and focusing on politics as a reporter. So Shauna started the Notorious RBG Tumblr in 2013. Um, about a year later... Julia Chaifetz at HarperCollins had this great idea to turn it into a biography of Justice Ginsburg. Not just all the fun memes, although we all love the fun memes, but kind of taking it to the next level. And Shauna, being in her third year of law school, said, yes, I'd love to work on this book, but I'm not a uh, popular writer. So I was brought in uh, to collaborate, to be the co-author. And honestly, it's a little bit like a blind date. You don't really know. You know, I had been covering the Supreme Court for a while. I had been covering feminism for a longer while. Um, So to me, it was like, great, this sounds awesome. But also, holy shit, you know, I'm going to be working with someone that I've never met. Um, Who doesn't even use the phone. Who doesn't even use the phone. But um, I really recommend writing a book with another person. Tell me the pros and cons of that. (laughs) I think a lot of my friends who have written books have felt very isolated and uh, depressed And I ultimately, you know, we explain this in the author's note. We both reported and researched the book. Shauna primarily corralled all the images, um, which is a really complicated process, and we have about 150 of them in the book. She fact-checked it and did the end notes. 
But ultimately, I wrote it, which meant that I was stuck alone in the computer. But the reporting process, it's so fun to be able to say, oh, my God, guess what I just found out? And when I would get, you know, and she had never done, a, like, a journalistic interview before, but she's so good at it. So she would come back with this amazing material, and I'd be like, what? I can't believe this story. This is incredible. And we could be excited about that together. Having done um, – right now I'm working on a book on – and I've done the the notes and the fact checking for someone who I didn't get any credit for, and I really love that you guys not only gave each other credit but also credited all of the other people who were part of creating this moment and movement. Well, and by movement, I mean movement towards sort of celebrating Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life and work. Yeah, I mean, I think we take our cues from her. She, you know, one of my favorite stories well, about but she her. She doesn't. She she would never do this do what i don't think she would like have t-shirts of herself and a blog going no on. no but we take our cues from her commitment to giving credit to people i see okay one that's wonderful by the way she does give people the shirts she gives people the <laughs> notorious rpg shirts despite being extremely modest she loves the notorious rpg thing in fact we just did a workout with her trainer for the melissa harris perry show it's going to air in a couple on the 31st um and he told us that she has worked out with him in the past with the t-shirt <laughs> so uh she is notorious um but um in terms so of in terms of giving credit one of my favorite stories about her and i didn't really even understand it until i got deeper into the legal world and realized the context which is that she gets her first shot in 1971 at writing a brief to the Supreme Court on a major gender discrimination case at a time where, like, a tiny window had opened for saying that women could be potentially equal under the law. And I just want to give some background to people that um, it, it is – in 1944, you had the first female clerk at the Supreme Court. It wasn't until 1981 that Sandra Day O'Connor uh, became the first chief justice. The so first female justice. The first female chief justice. Excuse me. Excuse me. In 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice, not chief justice. In 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor became the first female justice. So to talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, writing this, and this was after she had published her first book. Is that correct? Well, she had been writing about Sweden. So she did publish about Sweden throughout the 60s and became fluent in Swedish, um, which was very formative for her feminism because the Swedes are better than us in every possible gendered way. Um, you always hear about their paternity leave and stuff, but um, and sex education, everything. Yeah, I remember um, I did a thesis on birth and birth control, and, oh. and yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, anyway, she wrote her first brief to the Supreme Court, which is where the lawyer lays out all of their arguments, uh, their best case to the court. And often it's not the oral argument; it's the brief that the, convinces the Supreme Court justices to rule one way or another. And it's her chance to get her name in front of them. And so she puts her name down, and she puts down the name of two women who did not actually write it. And one of them was Dorothy Kenyon. The other one was Polly Murray. And they were two um, ACLU lawyers. At that point, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just was about to co-found and was working with the ACLU, was about to co-found the ACLU Women's Rights Project. Um, these women had been trying for so long to get the ACLU to include gender discrimination in its mission. One of them, Polly Murray, was a black woman who had faced every conceivable kind of door slammed in her face. 
And they were the ones, Polly Murray in particular, had suggested the exact legal strategy that Ginsburg was presenting to the Supreme wow. Court, but they had never gotten it to the Supreme Court. And so she said, we're, she said, I'm standing on their shoulders. You know, we were saying the same things that they were saying, but we, we were luckier because the court was ready to listen. But in the 50s and 60s when they were working, the court wasn't. And I think just this act of giving credit is very radical in our society. You yes. know, everyone's like trying to build their brand. And um, I think it's a cause of a lot of conflict that people feel like there's limited resources to go around. They don't really want to give people shout outs. And she got flack internally at the ACLU for doing it. Um, but I think she's always tried to make sure that she's giving credit to the people who inspired her, helped her, taught her. And th- this was the first case book on sexual discrimination that you're talking about? This was her brief in the first case that she brought to the Supreme okay. Court, which was Reed v. Reed. That was the case of the woman who was not given the right to administer her son's estate because Idaho automatically preferred men over women, even though the husband had not been a good father and allowed him to get the gun that killed that the son used to kill himself it's amazing that that is <laughs> um also touching on another issue that's a still with problem. us yeah. yeah um i had read in your book i believe that she also um in terms of alphabetical order she wanted to list the people who had written um in alphabetical order which meant that her name wouldn't go first and i know from academia that you always want to have your name at least in the first two or three, because if you're not listed there, no one ever gets to know that you worked on that project. It also meant that the only man, uh, Kenneth Davidson, was first, and there was a case book about sex discrimination. But I think, you know, she just has this sort of ramrod integrity that she tries to bring to everything. It's really beautiful. Um, I also wanted to ask you what your interest in the Supreme Court, when where it stemmed, because it sounds like it stemmed before really getting into focusing on Ruth Bader Ginsburg in particular? It was through covering abortion um, as a as a fault line in American society. So um, around the time, maybe a few months after that Daily Show piece, um, I started, I was just put on the politics beat by the editor at the time, Jessica Cohn, and I thought like, I don't really know what I'm doing here. I've always been interested in it, but I feel kind of intimidated by it. And it was Starting in 2011, after all of the conservative takeovers of state houses and of the House of Representatives, all of a sudden there were an unprecedented number of abortion restrictions coming up and lawsuits against them. And I just found myself riveted by the ways in which people had to be like both strategic and bring evidence and bring ideas and different values and then that you have these judges write often kind of like journalistically interesting opinions about them. Um, so, and also because as a blogger, Jezebel, you know, you have to write all these posts and look for what's your angle. And I would often find like awesome nuggets inside of these opinions that were in lower federal courts about all these abortion laws. And it got me really interested to understand the context more and to understand, you know, how do you get women's rights into this? dry, dusty document of the Constitution. And um, that's how I ended up I ended up covering it more, and then I ended up um, developing a relationship with uh, the Yale Law School's program for the study of reproductive justice, where there's a bunch of folks there that have been really great mentors to me and, and been resources to me on the law for the last three years. 
what did you um, take away from writing this book? Um, it what did you get out of it? What did I get out of it personally? What did I learn from it? I mean, I, I think there's something so intense about writing a biography of someone. And someone who is both quite open and also extremely controlled. And I came away with a great deepened sense of admiration and also feeling like there's a sort of mystery of who is Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Who is this woman that has accomplished all these things? She's had enormous pain in her life. I think I didn't really appreciate that until I was reading about all the things that she's been through and to, you know, it's so cheesy to say like someone overcomes the odds, but she's it. She, her mother died the day before her college graduation from Cornell. I'm I'm sorry. The day before her Her high high school school graduation, graduation. her mother died the day before her high school graduation. Her husband got cancer while she was juggling law school and having a small child. Is that why she switched to, to um, Columbia? Is that Mm -hmm. why they moved? Okay. uh, Kind of. He, he had a job in New York. Her husband had a job in New York. He was a year ahead of her. And, um, she was didn't know how long he would live, so she wanted to move to New York to follow him. Um, I think and then uh, they got to be married for fifty six years, which is a, a really beautiful, yeah, and long marriage, which is a miracle. She has all of these contradictions because she's a, a a sort of modest, restrained person who's also clearly extremely passionate, and just for me trying to understand her as a person and how it was that she pulled off everything that she did felt like this great honor. And now also, you know, not like we're like BFFs, but I, I do now have a relationship with her through the writing of the book and through interviewing her for MSNBC. And that feels like a great privilege to get to know someone a little bit who uh, create, who made history, who is living history, and who used the talents that, you know, I asked her, what do you want to be remembered for? Someone who used whatever talents she had to try to repair the tears in the world, is what she said. And is that the case for you as well? Is that how I want to be remembered? Mm-hmm. God willing. Yeah. Um, I was so taken by your guys um, looking at her and asking her about anger. And... Um, it is fascinating because she is so articulate and probably one of the most articulate people in the world when it comes to using their anger effectively on paper. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to see that contrast and contradiction with how she feels about showing it in her own workplace. I'm writing about this now because I do think it's one of the most nuanced and difficult aspects of her because she became known on the Internet as this sort of, you know, tough woman this fierce dissenter and she is and she was but at the same time she's so incredibly restrained and believes that expressing anger for the sake of it is unproductive she's so tactical she's so uh interested in playing the long game um that it's it's fascinating to think that how many battles she hasn't picked in her life because she wanted to be effective and that that's sort of like the opposite of what it would be a popular feminist thing you know it's like get angry hit the streets um and i think she thinks that there's a role for social movements but you know she often gives her mother-in-law's advice for marriage where she says it's just that it helps to be a little deaf 
And she says that that's good advice for the Supreme Court. So I think there's certain things that she's chosen not to hear. And then when the time is right, when she feels like she's already tried everything she can to actually win or gain an effective result, that's when she decides to use her anger. How do you feel on the subject of using your anger? I feel remarkably similar about it, actually. I mean, I don't think I've ever been a real rager in my writing, Um, even though, you know, we we had lots of righteous indignation at Jezebel. I think it's always been, I mean, I feel very passionately about a lot of things, but I often think that, you know, confrontation for the sake of it just saps you. You're just hurting yourself unless, you know, unless, A, you can't control it. I've cried from rage like anybody else. But if you can sort of stop and think, you know, am I am I just costing myself energy and time and giving it to someone else who doesn't deserve it? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask if you had a chance to interview the other Supreme Court justices, and I'm guessing you did, about how they felt about um, all the attention going to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, mm-hmm. and specifically in terms of Sonia Sotomayor and uh, Elena Kagan as well as Sandra Day O'Connor. I did not interview the other justices, um, although we did try. Um, why? Why is it hard to get them, particularly Sandra Day O'Connor, who's uh, you know, retired? I, you know, I, I don't know what the reasons were for for not agreeing to be interviewed, but I would say I think they enjoy uh, the notorious RBG phenomenon. So, Sonia Sotomayor is definitely a cultural hero in her own right. And I think she's clearly enjoying being out in the world. I mean, she just w- she'll go to a baseball game or a dedication of a mural of her face. I, I don't think she's hurting for for accolades. Um, and Justice Kagan actually gave a talk in Justice Ginsburg's honor at uh, the New York Bar Association in New York City a couple of years ago, and she gave a presentation in which she showed pictures of the notorious rpg meme and made jokes about it because she clearly she has a great sense of humor and she clearly thinks it's awesome and hilarious and i think she has a, a warm relationship with justice ginsburg in a way that almost no one has on the court um we did have to get justice scalia's um permission to use the photo of the two of them him he and ginsburg on the elephant so it was pretty funny to get an email from the court to say uh you know, Justice Scalia approves the use of the photo of him on an elephant for the notorious <laughs> RBG. <laughs> just imagine, like, you know, an assistant just, like, reading at him out the requests of the day, and he's like, notorious what, you know? Is that how they – so when they filter through to the press person or the assistant, and mm. then they read them aloud? I think so. It's not a very transparent process. <laughs> but, yeah, we I think that, that request went through the curator of the Supreme Court. And I should say they were unbelievably helpful – because, you know, they are a small staff that, that handles, like, the photos and archives of all the justices and all the requests. Um, and they were really, we were working on a very tight deadline for our images, and they were great. And what are you covering now? Uh, abortion? Abortion. And the Supreme Court. Uh, it all comes together. So um, I just finished a project uh, that recently, recently went live about the end of abortion access in red America question mark it's called shuttered and it's the anchor of it is a long form piece reported in Texas and Louisiana Um, basically the Supreme Court any day now is going to say likely next month is going to say whether it's going to take up these 
new restrictions, the ones that are arguably the most damaging. Um, and they basically require clinics to jump through all kinds of hoops in order to continue providing abortions. And in very conservative states, it's been basically impossible to comply with these laws. They require admitting privileges or they require that abortions take place in these gigantic ambulatory surgical centers. And uh, the claim is that these protect women's health, although if you ask any major medical association, they beg to differ. So the question is, is it, can you shut down a bunch of clinics if you say it's for women's health, is that placing an undue burden on a woman's right to abortion? So the w way we wanted to tell this story is we have eight people, you know, in the business we call them characters, but they're real humans, uh, who told us their story. And we have audio interviews and portraits of them. And we have uh, videos of two of them, a pro-life and pro-choice activist, and a photo essay of one of them who is a doctor who provides abortions in three cities, in two cities, and travels between three cities in Texas. So that all just went live. Wow. Um, well, I'm going to encourage uh, listeners to certainly get Notorious RBG. It's a great book. It's really um, thoughtful and funny. And I uh, like that it, when I say it's family friendly, I mean that it really <laughs> genuinely um, is a pleaser for, for different generations. Um, and also, you can check out if you have television. You can check out um, Irin on TV as well. And the project I just talked about is at msnbc.com forward slash shuttered. I like all the slashes. Um, thank you so, so much for taking the time to, to meet today. And congratulations on becoming an employee of the month. Thank you so much.